I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to the latest of our We the People Constitutional Podcasts. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And this has been an exciting week at the National Constitution Center. On Bill of Rights Day, December 15th, we opened our new exhibit with one of the 12 original surviving copies of the Bill of Rights. And we just found out that our We the People podcast series has been ranked as the second most popular news podcast on the popular Podbeam service, which ranks up to 600,000 podcasts. And we are overall the ninth most popular podcast on Podbeam in 2014. That is thanks to the loyal uh, listening of our wonderful uh, listeners. Uh, that's that's all of you. And we're so grateful to you for tuning in for these constitutional discussions. This week, we discuss one of the most hotly contested questions of the year, namely, is the U.S. government's use of so-called enhanced interrogation techniques illegal under the Constitution or domestic or international law? Last week, the Senate Intelligence Committee released the 525-page executive summary of a classified report detailing the CIA's detainment and interrogation of terrorist suspects in the years after 9-11. Uh, the, the findings reveal a program of far greater scope than had been previously reported and notes internal disagreement at the CIA about the use of those tactics with some officers questioning the usefulness of the intelligence and the legality of the practices and others defending uh, the practices. There remains a vigorous public debate over whether or not the CIA engaged in so-called torture, and if it did, whether the alleged conduct violates the Constitution or domestic or international law. Joining me to sort through these complicated and important questions are two of the leading experts in America on national security law and civil liberties. Chris Anders is Senior Legislative Counsel in the American Civil Liberties Union's Washington Legislative Office, where he represents the ACLU before Congress and the Executive Branch. And Michael Lewis is Professor of Law at Ohio Northern University's Pettit College of Law, where he teaches and writes on international law and the laws of war. Michael is a veteran of the U.S. Navy, as well as a uh, returning friend of the Constitution Center. He participated in a great Intelligence Squared debate last March about the constitutionality of targeted killings of U.S. citizens abroad. And I just should say parenthetically that although the audience had voted initially that uh, targeted killings did not violate the president's constitutional power after Michael and Alan Dershowitz gave among the best closing arguments I've ever heard, the audience switched their vote and said that the president did have the constitutional power. All right, gentlemen, let's get right into this extremely interesting and important topic. Uh, Chris, one um, central question in this debate has been whether or not the CIA engaged in so-called torture at all. Explain for our listeners how the law defines torture and whether you think the CIA's tactics, as described in the Senate report, qualify as torture. Uh, the the uh, definition of torture uh, is is one that's uh, that's defined in the Convention Against Torture and also uh, has been codified to U.S. law under the Anti-Torture Act. Um, and although it's also important to point out that there are a number of other um, criminal statutes that also apply um, to this instance, so that through either the Anti-Torture Act um, or through general criminal statutes where there's criminal jurisdiction um, overseas, 
uh, most of the uh, conduct that's described in the report uh, would be criminal. Um, and so, it, it, although the test the test goes into uh, uh, severity um, of the of the act and um, and it acts uh, uh, have to have to inflict uh, uh, significant uh, uh, anticipation of of pain um, or suffering um, or or actual uh, physical pain or damage um, and uh, uh, but but what we also have here are places where where there's there's overlapping criminal uh, statutes so that uh, some of these acts uh, likely would fall under the Anti-Torture Act. Um, others would fall under general criminal statutes prohibiting uh, assault or homicides. Michael, do you agree with Chris's legal analysis? Uh, what do you think distinguishes enhanced interrogation techniques from torture? Where do we draw the line and how do we determine uh, well, rather, do you believe that the CIA's behavior was legal or Ill illegal? I, I think it's a close call for some of the techniques. I think that it's it's clearly uh, not torture or was not illegal for some of the other techniques. And I'm sure that Chris and I uh, would probably disagree on on where you draw the line. And and I think that's the the biggest question you ask is how do you or where do you draw the line for this? Be because the definition of torture under the Convention Against Torture, which is then codified into the anti-torture statute under, under U.S. law, uh, is it the prohibition of the intentional infliction of severe pain or suffering for the purpose of either gaining information or punishing your victim or others. And so we're talking about intentional infliction. I don't think there's any question about that. The, the real word that matters is severe pain or suffering, either physical or mental. And so what is severe pain or suffering? And, and in all of the debate we've had about this, and, and this was debated at length back in 2009 when the Obama administration uh, released the redacted OLC memos that described the techniques that were used, was you know what does constitute severe pain or suffering? And you get this very Potter Stewart-like, I know it when I see it. And except that everybody thinks that what they see is, is different from what other people see. And, and so, Anybody tasked, and John Yu was tasked, with drawing the line between torture and not torture. And, and I would submit that anybody tasked with doing that is going to be considered a monster by some and is going to be considered far too weak by others who say, you know, you can't tell me we're not allowed to do a simple facial slap or something like this in order to get information that may save lives. And, and that's, that's the real crux of this is how you go about drawing the line and, and it's not something that anybody wants to do. I, I've yet to debate anyone on the other side of this issue who said, here's where I'm going to draw the line, because it would be saying that certain things you can do that are distasteful uh, would, in, would in fact be legitimate or not torture. Uh, and as I say, I've, I've had yet to have anybody on the other side of this debate say, yeah, you could do technique A, B, and C, but not D, E, and F. Fast for one more beat on this. Let's try to identify the most egregious alleged conduct and see whether or not you and Michael agree that it meets the legal definition. Uh, former Attorney General Michael Mukasey in the Wall Street Journal wrote that uh, none of the conduct uh, amounted to illegal torture. He notes that Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, one of the worst of the three waterboarded terrorists, 
uh, was seen to count seconds by tapping his fingers until the waterboarding was over. Some torture, he argues. On the other hand, John Yu told Fareed Zakaria that if these things happened as they are described in the report, they were not authorized by the Justice Department. Is waterboarding the worst of the alleged conduct? And do you believe that that meets the legal definition of torture? Well, I, I guess I guess it depends on uh, how you how you define worse. Uh, the um, the report also describes uh, a detainee who is left um, who is left with I believe just a sweatshirt on, no other clothes, is stripped down, uh, uh, left on a cold floor, chained to the wall, and uh, left there overnight. And uh, when they checked on him in the morning, he had died uh, from exposure. Um, so he, he that's in that instance, I was someone who literally was tortured to death. Um, there were other people who were uh, subjected to uh, a technique that that uh, had not been disclosed until this report uh, came out that was uh, called either rectal feeding or rectal hydration, um, which unbelievably has been defended uh, by former Vice President Cheney and, and a couple of others um, as as some kind of medical uh, technique that was used. Um, uh, physicians over the past week have said this is this is a um, uh, rectal hydration is is an extraordinarily rarely used um, technique in emergency situations only when there's no other way to hydrate somebody. There there was no there was no medical need whatsoever for that to be used here, and rect rectal feeding is never used because that's not that's not the way somebody takes in um, nutrients. That was nothing. That's nothing other than a, uh, uh, a sexual assault, and um, and and you know that, and there's and there's not, now that also was as far as we know was, it was certainly not um, in the a tactic that was described in any of the legal memos put out by the Justice Department. Um, another another detainee was left to stand uh, and was ordered to stand on on broken legs. Um, that had not been set, uh, and so there, you know, there, there's certainly a number of tactics that I think, by any stretch of the imagination, um, would uh, constitute torture by any definition. Um, and then, of course, there is there is overlapping um, uh, these these criminal statutes overlap with one another, and uh, so you know, even if even if there is some argument that something doesn't qualify as torture. Um, there are other statutes that apply, um, including the federal assault statute, and uh, and it's not government officials in facilities run uh, run by and for the federal government cannot cannot punch and slap uh, uh, detainees or anybody in their custody, and they certainly can't waterboard them or or leave them out chained to a wall to die. Um, Michael, could you, let me just ask whether any of the alleged conduct uh, that Chris describes, whether it's waterboarding or rectal hydration or the exposure of the of the uh, detainee who died, uh, do you think uh, meets the legal definition of torture? Yeah, letting somebody freeze to death. Uh, yes, that, that's that's torture, uh, and it's homicide as well. And it clearly, was not something that was approved. Right, the CIA did come back to the White House and Justice and say. We want to do things beyond the Army Field Manual in order to do the interrogations. Uh, here are things we are proposing. What can we do? What can't we do? And then the OLC memos came out and said you can do these things, you can't do those things. 
they didn't include having people stand on broken legs or rectal feeding or anything like that. Uh, they did include waterboarding. And I think waterboarding is the harshest of the approved techniques. I think that's probably the best way of thinking about it. Is, is waterboarding legal? Is waterboarding torture? Does that cross the line? And I think that, that is the, uh, that's the closest call. The other techniques, uh, some form of sleep deprivation for a period of time, facial slaps, belly slaps, confinement to cramped quarters, something like that. I, I don't think most of those would meet the definition of torture, and, and even according to the European Court of Human Rights in the uh, Ireland versus UK case said that it did not meet the definition of torture, at least some of these techniques, such as the wall standing or stress positions and things like that. Waterboarding is a different matter. Waterboarding does make you believe that you are drowning. Uh, and it, it is absolutely, it's terrifying. There's no question about that. Uh, but it also is instantly relieved. The moment that you take the cloth off the person's face and they're breathing again, they are fine. And we, we have done this technique to thousands of our own troops in training in uh, SEER school, which is survival, evasion, resistance, and escape school that you put people through in order to give them some small taste of what captivity is likely to be like and to train them in how to resist techniques that are used to try to break you and quite honestly to let you know that you will be broken. Waterboarding was the technique used in SEER to prove to anyone who didn't think they could be broken that they would be because when you go through that, you are willing to tell them you know, what they want to know. Uh, because you don't want to go through that anymore. And we, it's very effective. It also does not cause any permanent harm. Uh, and as I say, in the thousands of cases of American servicemen going through the same thing, uh, there were no instances of either physical or, or mental problems associated with having been waterboarded. It sounds like we've narrowed the terms of debate very helpfully. You've both agreed that the rectal hydration and the you know, having someone die of exposure would qualify as torture. You disagree about waterboarding. Rather than debating that further, what I'd like to do is focus on the constitutional questions because this is the National Constitution Center, and I think our listeners uh, will be curious about whether the alleged conduct, and let's focus on the most egregious stuff, say the rectal hydration, whether that violates, first of all, the Eighth Amendment, which prohibits cruel and unusual punishment, and then the due process clause. Let's begin with the Eighth Amendment. Justice Antonin Scalia weighed in on this recently. Um, he said of the Senate report, I don't know what article of the Constitution that would contravene. He said that we have laws against torture. The Constitution itself says nothing about torture. The Constitution speaks of punishment. If you condemn someone who's committed a crime to torture, that would be unconstitutional. But as for torture to obtain information, Scalia said, we've never held that to be contrary to the Constitution. I don't see any article of the Constitution that would contravene. Chris, do you agree with Justice Scalia that the Eighth Amendment, as construed by the Supreme Court, does not prohibit uh, the torture described in the CIA report? It, the, uh, I, most of the tactics, if not all of them, that, were, that are described in that report would be, uh, if, done, if done domestically, let's say by, by a police officer in, uh, in Oklahoma City, um, or Philadelphia, or, uh, where you are, um, would be would be violations of the Eighth Amendment, um, and uh, and so and the um, now the there's a 
there's a question about the application of these constitutional protections uh, to persons overseas, non-citizens overseas, um, and uh, and that and a aspect of of this program was was to uh, to try to avoid um, application of of literally any laws. Um, and that's part of the reason. Uh, it's actually the principal reason Guantanamo was opened initially was to, uh, as one of its um, early proponents said, to find a legal equivalent of outer space. Um, and uh, and then with these uh, particular detainees through the CIA program, some of them started out at Guantanamo and, and eventually ended up there. Um, uh, but a, a lot of the tactics and a lot of the practices that are described in the report were done at uh, these secret um, sites that were all overseas, as far as we know, um, and, uh, and, and all done to non-citizens. So, you know, there, there the, you know, the Eighth Amendment, you know, generally is considered not to have apl applied or that question has never been decided. Um, at Guantanamo, uh, there, you know, it's, there's a, uh, after the, uh, a couple of Supreme Court decisions on uh, the application of the Constitution, uh, some constitutional protections, in particular the habeas protection at Guantanamo, there's a stronger argument that the Constitution would have provided protection there. Um, and then, and then of course, there's there's a you know broader um, and you know maybe non-justiciable, but a broader question of, about separation of of powers and of duty of the executive branch to uh, comply with laws passed by Congress, um, which it, which raises which raises other other problems too in terms of of the constitutional system of checks and balances, where you had you know branches, one branch of the government and actually one with the CIA one uh, component of the executive branch um, that was not accountable to other branches and was not complying with. Um, with duly enacted um, statutes, um, and and then and then complicating the the oversight, it was it was lying. Uh, and there's a there's a big parts of this report about the lie the lies were told and the deception uh, from the CIA of of not just Congress but also of the White House and the Justice Department. And when you add all these pieces together. There's a there's a, you know a potential constitutional problem uh, under the Eighth Amendment at least for um, practices that occurred while detainees were at Guantanamo. Um, there's a broader um, constitutional problem of of undermining of of the separation of powers and the system of checks and balances uh, uh, provided for in the Constitution. Great, Mike. Uh, Chris has identified a number of constitutional objections, but I want to hone in on the Eighth Amendment one uh, to begin with. So uh, Mike has said that the uh, Eighth Amendment, um, if the conduct alleged were committed to U.S. citizens on U.S. soil, would violate the Eighth Amendment. Uh, first of all, do you agree with that, or do you agree with Justice Scalia that if the torture is imposed uh, to obtain information and not as a form of punishment, it would not violate the Eighth Amendment, and then tell us what you think about the applicability of the Eighth Amendment abroad to these detainees. Well, the Eighth Amendment says that excessive bail shall not be required, nor excessive fines imposed, nor cruel and unusual punishments inflicted. 
And so from the text of it, we're, we're talking about, in all cases, a criminal situation. Uh, and we're talking about, you know, whether it be bail or fines or cruel and unusual punishments. But, but this is about punishment. This is about punishment of people that are criminals, that are prisoned. And, and there's a difference between, between being a criminal and being a detainee in a, an armed conflict. And, and it is the U.S. position, has been the U.S. position throughout, it may, remains the U.S. position today, that we are in an un, in armed conflict with al-Qaeda and associated forces. And so these people that we had in our control that we were detaining, whether it be in Guantanamo or on black sites overseas, uh, were not criminals, and they were not being held as criminals. They could eventually, and some of them will be and have been tried, either in U.S. courts of law or in military commissions, and sentences have been imposed on them, and those sentences could not include waterboarding or any of these other treatments that would be cruel and unusual punishment, because those are punishments for criminals. But we're talking about a detention uh, pursuant to or part of uh, an armed conflict. And under an armed conflict, you know, you, you detain people and you interrogate people and you question them. And the U.S. Constitution does not say, certainly did not say during World War II, that when you had German prisoners of war or Japanese prisoners of war in Okinawa or France or Italy or wherever else, that you know, the U.S. Constitution had nothing to say about how those people were treated as prisoners of war and detainees. And, and I don't think the U.S. Constitution has anything to say about how detainees in the war on terror are treated either, certainly not the Eighth Amendment. Great. Uh, Chris, uh, you could please respond if you, if you like to Mike's uh, very clear uh, argument that the Eighth Amendment doesn't bind uh, torture designed to extract information uh, to detainees under the laws of war. And then please tell us uh, and our listeners what you think about the applicability of the Fifth Amendment to torture overseas. On the one hand, the Supreme Court has said that the Fifth Amendment bars abuses of power or conduct that shocks the conscience. But in 1999, a U.S. court found that the amendment does not apply to uh, Jennifer Harbury, who was an alien tortured overseas. The U.S. Court of Appeals said that there was no jurisdiction because the torture and murder occurred in Guatemala and the U.S. did not exercise de facto political control there. So one more beat on the Eighth Amendment and then tell us what you think about the Fifth Amendment due process objection. Yeah, I think, well, I think, you know, in terms of uh, it's, the the analysis is, is, of course, complicated by a constitutional analysis is complicated by uh, the fact that most of this conduct occurred uh, outside the United States and outside of Guantanamo um, in the secret uh, CIA prison sites overseas and uh, and was being uh, carried out, at least for all the detainees um, described in the report, uh, were all non-citizens. Um, and uh, and so the 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 applicability of of the constitutional um, protections um, would certainly be at its uh, at its weakest um, with in that scenario. Um, in terms of in terms of kind of the Eighth Amendment more broadly, um, uh, it's it apply it it applies when when there's a 
when somebody is isn't is held in custody, and uh, and it's and it would if it were if this whole scenario were being carried out in Nebraska as opposed to Poland or Thailand, um, the the Eighth Amendment um, argument would be very strong that that the uh, that the military or the CIA simply because they're saying we're holding you um, in in you know some some version of an armed conflict um, they can't they can't use those practices just because they haven't charged them um, so I, I I think that's you know that's there are problems and difficulties with applying the Eighth Amendment and I think similarly with the Fifth Amendment um, as well applying applying those to non-citizens um, abroad um, is a is a difficult uh, uh, you know it's a difficult case to make um, because there there is not case law on point the the um, uh, the Supreme Court seemed to be poised um, this term to possibly take a case um, uh, with the with a detainee in Bagram um, but that detainee has now uh, been released from Bagram, uh, so we and Bagram being in Afghanistan, so you know we don't have we don't have that kind of on point um, uh, decision that we would have, uh, you know, such as with Guantanamo. Mike, do you agree, or, or rather, give us your analysis of whether the alleged conduct might violate the Fifth Amendment? Um, and if you think that the Fifth Amendment does not apply to torture committed overseas, as the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia held, please tell us why. After all, the amendment applies to all persons, citizens and aliens alike. Is it the fact that uh, persons are not protected overseas, or is it the fact that this, these are military detainees and the due process analysis is different under the laws of war? I think it's the second. I think it's definitely the laws of war change things. Uh, I think Chris had said that the, the difficulty in trying to either make a Fifth or, or Eighth Amendment claim here uh, is because there's no case on point. It, it, the reason it's difficult to do this is because it's never been done before. It, it, it has never been applied during wartime. We have, had, we have been involved in many wars, and we have had many detainees uh, and no one has ever suggested that our enemies during wartime have either Fifth or Eighth Amendment uh, rights. And so the, to the extent that we're going to create such things now, um, you know, maybe the Supreme Court would go down that path, although I think it's unlikely that they would. Uh, but but there's, there's no precedent for it and no basis for saying either of these amendments apply. And, and again, if you look through the Fifth Amendment, uh, it, it talks about, these are all, no person shall be held to answer for a capital or otherwise infamous crime. We're talking about crime again, uh, without an indictment grand jury. It, it even makes an exception there, except in cases arising in the land or naval forces or militia in time of war or public danger. So even our own people, if they are serving in the military, if they are in time of war, even our own people don't get those protections necessarily. Uh, because of the nature of warfare, let alone aliens or enemies. And that's what we're talking about. We're talking about enemies that have been captured uh, during a war. And to say that the Fifth Amendment applies to them, when the Fifth Amendment by its own terms does not apply to our own forces during wartime, I think is, is a very 
hard case to make, and, and I, I don't quite see how uh, how you could get there. And and this goes back to you know the targeted killings debate we had back in March uh, at the Constitution Center. The, the idea of saying that uh, someone, even an American citizen, who is being targeted overseas as part of a war, retains their Fifth Amendment rights to due process, uh, again, is something that has never occurred. America, Japanese Americans and German Americans fought for their respective countries against the United States, and we did not feel that it was necessary at all to figure out who or whether they were American citizens when we were killing them uh, during World War II as part of the war. And we didn't say if we captured somebody and they were a Japanese-American or a German-American citizen, they didn't get treated any differently from the German citizens that were members of the German army. And the Supreme Court even went so far as to say that clearly in Kieran, that the American citizen captured along with the German saboteurs had no more rights, uh, no more constitutional rights than did his comrades in arms. If you join with the enemy, if you are part of the enemy, you do not have U.S. constitutional rights. All right, gentlemen, it is time for closing arguments. Chris, let me ask you, if you think, as you've described, that the constitutional arguments under the Eighth and Fifth Amendments are contested, um, if you were bringing a case against uh, former CIA officials for their conduct, what would the core of the legal case be? What statutes would you argue that they violated? Uh, and do you, in fact, think the prosecutions against the officials should be brought? Well, the 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 core the core uh, of of any complaint uh, against them it would be in the criminal area, and uh, which of course requires the Justice Department to take action. Uh, we. If you look through, if you look through the uh, report, it is crime after crime after crime, and uh, and we could debate uh, probably all day long whether whether something uh, particular act qualifies as torture under the Anti-Torture Act or not um, with with some of the acts, um, but uh, but most of these acts uh, constitute, uh, if if not violations of the Anti-Torture Act. In violations of the federal uh, assault uh, statute or the federal ban on homicides, and um, and there there is even for even for some of the practices that we had just talked about earlier of facial slaps and punching, uh, police officers in the United States can't do the those kinds of acts against uh, anyone in their custody because of a number of laws, including assault laws. Uh, they can't. Uh, military officers can't do do those against people in their custody, and CIA officers uh, aren't somehow uh, above and beyond the law. Um, they can't. They can't take those kinds of uh, acts against uh, anyone in their custody either. And uh, and these these the United States has a duty, um, as does every other country, um, under the Convention Against Torture to. Uh, bar acts of torture within their jurisdiction, and to criminally investigate, if warranted, prosecute uh, persons who have who have engaged in acts of torture. Um, we're concerned here and now that that of all those crimes that are described by all the the different um, officials and contractors um, in the 500-page report, there isn't a single person who has been um, charged with a crime. 
And uh, and if we are living as we all believe we are in a country that's under the rule of law, um, no one can be above the law. And uh, and our concern is that is that with the with the current outcome of these cases, uh, it does it does appear that there are some who who are above or beyond the law. Uh, thanks very much for those uh, concluding thoughts. Mike, um, out of all the conduct that's alleged, uh, what do you think is most uh, liable to being challenged on legal grounds? Um, and even if you do believe that some laws might have been violated, do you think that prosecution should in fact be brought? Uh, generally, I would say prosecution should not be brought uh, unless you have a clear violation of the law. Uh, Chris is saying that these people are above the law, but that's not in fact true. They went to, the CIA went to Justice OLC and said, our current manuals say we can't do these things. We want to do these things. Are they legal? And they got a response saying, yes, they are legal. Uh, you're absolutely right. A police officer can't do these things. But there's a difference when you're talking about a detainee during wartime. And then the question is, what can you do to a detainee during wartime? You absolutely cannot torture them. You cannot torture them, and to the extent anything that was done was torture, that should be prosecuted. The difficulty with prosecuting it is figuring out exactly what torture is, and the whole I know it when I see it answer is not nearly clear enough to determine what is or is not torture. And when it comes to defining it, when it comes to drawing lines, if, if we're, the, the last person that attempted to draw a line and determine what is or is not torture is someone who Chris and many other people said should be prosecuted for it. Who in the world wants to come into the government and actually take on a job like that, try to define torture, when your sole reward for that is going to be to be prosecuted by the next administration for getting it wrong from someone else's point of view? But that's exactly what Chris and many other people are saying. We should prosecute people who tried to draw these lines because we don't agree with the lines that they drew. And, and I think that's very problematic. Now, where you have something that clearly goes beyond, right, the, the CIA and the OLC and Justice never authorized letting somebody freeze to death. You let somebody freeze to death, that's homicide, that is a violation of the law, that person or the person in charge of that should be prosecuted, no question. But when you're talking about... Uh, Facial slaps, which absolutely, you can't do that as a police officer. But can a military person do that to a detainee if he has been authorized by his commander-in-chief to do so? I would say no. yes, because I don't think that that's torture. And I think that the prohibition on what you can do is when you cross the line into torture. And I don't think anybody can claim that a facial slap is torture. It is against the law. It is assault. But assault is not a standard than a military officer is held to when he is dealing with a detainee during wartime. That that's not something that U.S. law governs. The Uniform Code of Military Justice does. And the Uniform Code of Military Justice would generally say you cannot slap detainees. However, if you have asked specifically up your chain of command, may I do this in this case for this reason, because I believe he has information, and you get told, yes, you may use these other techniques, that is legal, unless it is torture. Thank you so much for those powerful concluding thoughts. Uh, this will be the last of our We the People podcast for 2014. Uh, we will look forward to seeing you in the new year. 
And on that score, I should mention that although, uh, despite our inspiring congressional charter, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit that depends entirely on the support of great listeners like you. If you'd like to make a year-end contribution to the Constitution Center to support our We the People podcast, please do so online at constitutioncenter.org. And be sure to listen to the next of our We the People constitutional podcasts. Have a wonderful new year. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.